So this evening's passage will be 2 Corinthians 12, and that's verses 1 to 10. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he has heard things that can't be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except my weaknesses. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So I'd just like you all to look behind you and to see uh, two clocks on the wall, uh, one that tells the time and one that is counting up. And uh, we need to have three, one that counts down from 45 minutes. Um, welcome back to students who are away at the weekend. A number of you are here. Um, if you fall asleep, that will be just fine tonight. Um, we'll hear next Sunday. Um, feedback from the weekend. Um, we thought about doing it tonight, but everyone was too tired uh, to do it. But a very happy time and a very safe time. And we're delighted that uh, you're all back uh, safe and uh, well. So we'll hear next uh, weekend. Now, if you have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians, to that passage that Isaac read, that will be uh, helpful for us. And to a passage that is uh, very well known, Um, if you are a Christian, uh, you may have heard this passage spoken about before, Paul's uh, thorn in the flesh. And if you're not a Christian here, as uh, Kath has said, we're delighted uh, you're here. And as we speak about what it means to be authentic as someone involved in Christian ministry or as a Christian, Through that, we always uh, are able to see the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very heart of our Christian uh, faith. Now, this letter to Corinthians is about authentic ministry. Paul writes to a church and a people he loves. He writes with extraordinary urgency and passion out of concern for them and about them, for they have been persuaded or seduced by ministers of ministry very different from the apostles Paul. And in Corinth, Paul, who had founded the church and is the apostle of Jesus, his ministry and he himself are being criticized and undermined. Now, the ministry that had persuaded the Corinthians is different from the apostles in content and style. Moreover, their motives are different from Paul's and the life of the ministers in Corinth different from the apostles' life. 
For example, they had moved beyond the simple message of Christ crucified to a more sophisticated message. Now, there is nothing new under the sun. The message of Christ and him crucified clashed with the culture and sophistication and wisdom of Corinth. And so it does now. Their preaching embraced worldly wisdom and Corinthian culture. The style of their ministry was very much emphasizing oratory and impressiveness, their motive, self-ambition, self-advancement, success, and the way that you knew that is their comparison. And their lives were successful and prosperous. Were they popular? Yes, very. And popularity is as much a product of the hearer as the speaker. Were they successful? Yes, very. And Paul writes appealing to the church in Corinth, calling them back to authentic ministry. Now his appeal runs all the way from chapter 11, verse 1, through to 12, verse 10. He's very strong in what he says about the what, he, what are called um, super apostles. He uh, points out that they are not apostles at all. And then we began to look last week, chapter 11, verse 16, through to chapter 12, verse 10, as Paul begins to describe the experience of authentic ministry. He does it by boasting, and he's still boasting in the passage that Isaac read. Not, and this is really important, because he is commending boasting in anything, indeed the opposite. There is no room for boasting in authentic ministry about anything. Only a fool boasts, he says. And why is Paul therefore using the language of boasting? Simply to get their attention, to get a hearing, boasting is the rhetoric they have become used to. And Paul begins by boasting of the kind of stuff that uh, they are used to. Back in chapter 11, part 2, is heritage's qualifications. In our passage tonight, the beginning of chapter 12, Paul boasts in this extraordinary revelation, this insight he has been given. Uh, I think uh, almost certainly Paul is talking about himself in chapter 12, although in the third person, because he just can't bring himself uh, to do it. Now, what are the principles from verses 16 to 33 of chapter 11, and they flow through into our verses tonight. Something like this. God's divine power rests upon and is experienced and demonstrated in the context of human frailty and weakness. So what you see in authentic Christian ministry or in the life of an authentic Christian church is human frailty and weakness. And therefore you see beyond the human messenger, the human agents, or us in the life of a church to the power and to the Lord Jesus himself. Now into chapter 12, Paul continues his description of the authentic ministry. And uh, don't uh, think of ministry as simply people like uh, Roger or Jay or myself. We are full time at it, but we are all at it. In different ways. Chalmers is full of ministry leaders, it's full of us all ministering to one another. Now, chapter 12, Paul continues his description of authentic ministry with his description of the thorn in his flesh. 
So let's read verses 7 to 9. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the kind of stuff he was talking about at the beginning of chapter 12, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, it's just worth uh, noting that that verse is a very famous verse in the Bible. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But like every verse in the Bible, it occurs in a context. And it has power and resonance in its context, as we shall see. Now, four headings expressed as questions. Firstly, what is Paul's thorn in the flesh? What is it? Now, we're not told what it is for a very good reason. That the Lord Jesus inspired the Apostle Paul to write about it in this way, as a thorn in the flesh, so that through the centuries and the millennia of the church, as this part of God's Word is read, studied, and preached, as we are doing now, the Holy Spirit can apply it specifically according to the circumstances in each of our lives. But is there a kind of plausible group of suggestions? Let me simply give to you what is the, the common suggestions in the Bible commentaries. Just list them. Paul's thorn in the flesh may be a physical illness or condition. And there is some allusion to uh, physical illnesses in his other letters. Is Paul's thorn in the flesh, it could be psychological illness or condition, mental health, very plausibly. Is Paul's thorn in the flesh disability, a speech impediment? We are told that he did not have the gift of oratory. It's worth uh, just drawing a distinction there between the gift to teach, which is fundamental to ministry or eldership, but that is not the same as the gift of oratory. It's the ability to expound, the ability to convey the truth of God's word. Most often it goes with the gift or the ability to speak clearly and cogently, but sometimes not, it seems, for the Apostle Paul. Or his thorn in the flesh could simply be opposition, the relentless negativity that is spun against him. People doing what we would now call using social media against him. Or is his thorn in the flesh a temptation to sin? Was he beset with a battle with temptation all through his life? A fierce battle. Yes, it could plausibly be. Or was it perhaps a stricken conscience because of his past as he held the clothes 
of those who stoned Stephen, perhaps. Now, these are plausible suggestions. And uh, if you read one of the big, thick Bible commentaries, uh, they all have some kind of substance to them from the rest of Scripture. Physical illness, psychological illness, disability, opposition, temptation to sin, and a stricken conscience. Now, Paul's thorn in the flesh is a painful thorn. Thorns are. Three times, he pleaded with the Lord to take it away. You do not plead with the Lord to take something away that is not painful. The thorn in his flesh hurt him. It debilitated him. He would have asked the Apostle Paul, has it hindered you in your ministry? Has it meant that you could not do things you wanted to do? Quite plausibly. It may well be when we get to speak to the Apostle Paul that he tells us, this is why I could not visit that church. Because I couldn't. And the sense we get is of a constancy to this thorn. Either there all of the time, or something that recurs again and again periodically through his life. Is it normal for those in Christian ministry, and let's have as expansive a definition of Christian ministry as we can, to have a thorn in their flesh? The answer to that is yes, it is normal. For two reasons. First, because the Bible says it is. Paul's description of authentic ministry in this letter is consistent with the description of authentic ministry everywhere in the New Testament. It is the common experience of all the apostles to be weak, to have thorns in their flesh. And it is the pattern of authentic experience for Christian ministers and Christian ministry. Now, can we go as far as to say that a thorn in the flesh is a mark of authentic ministry? Certainly one of them. But what we can certainly say is that authentic Christian ministry is characterized by weakness, one expression of which is a thorn in the flesh, a common way for weakness to be evident. Is it normal for those in Christian ministry to have a thorn in the flesh? Yes, because of what the Bible says. The second reason that the answer is yes is because in the lives of most authentic ministers of the gospel, there is a thorn in their flesh. Now, one thing I would love to do tonight, but it would be wrong, is to tell you of all the ministers that I know, and to tell you of the discussions, the prayers, the heartaches that very often are around a thorn in their flesh, our flesh, my flesh, your flesh. Now, second question, who is the thorn from? Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited, 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now we'll see in a moment that the purpose of the thorn in a minister's flesh is to help them to keep them authentic. And therefore it must logically have God behind it. Satan, the devil, the last thing he wants is for ministers to be authentic. Now God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over Satan. God is sovereign over the thorns in our lives. He allows us to have them. And often he does not take them away when we ask him. Now all of this is spoken in the context of real pastoral experience in the life of a real church. This is not a Bible passage or a sermon for a conference. It's one for a church. A thorn was given me. And Paul is quite clear in using that word given me. It is given by God. It is allowed or permitted by God. But under God's sovereignty, his permission, the thorn is a messenger of Satan to harass me. Why is it a messenger of Satan? Well, think of what the thorn is, plausibly. Physical illness, psychological illness, disability, opposition, temptation to sin, stricken conscience. These things are of the realm of this fallen world. These things are the realm of the prince of this world, Satan. And these are the means, and the only means, that Satan can deploy. Now notice two things. In the first place, and each one of these principles is rich and would merit further study and prayer. What Satan purposes for ill, God purposes for good. Now that's the kind of statement that you can just throw out like a text pelt. It needs to be felt and embraced in a suffering heart. What Satan purposes for ill, the messenger of Satan, is permitted or given by God for good. Let me come at it again, that we just do not mishear this. A thorn hurts, but a messenger of Satan can become a means of revelation of grace. Now, in the second place, God is sovereign. That is profoundly comforting. Let me try to explain that. I've been thinking about this, uh, praying about this through the week, and find it hard to put into words. The fact that the thorn is given by God and is a messenger of Satan, ultimately, God is therefore sovereign. That is profoundly comforting, not because we understand why God allows suffering in our lives. Now, there is some comfort from the question and the answer to why later on. But the fact that God is sovereign over the thorn 
means that he is sovereign over the thorn. I can't express that any different way. If God does not permit it, Satan cannot put that thorn in our flesh. Why God permits it is hard to understand, hard to accept. It vexes us. It can lead us to doubt. But in our pain to know that God permits that pain for a reason, for a purpose, is markedly different from the alternative that God has lost control over our lives and that our lives and God himself are under the power of Satan. Now you've got to try to grasp, we all have to try to grasp the truth of that and to pray it into our hearts because it does not look like it or feel like it. But it did not look like it or feel like it when Jesus was scourged and the bone-studded whip ripped into his flesh. Or when the crown of thorns cut into his head. Or when the nails were hammered into his hands and feet. Or the spear pierced his flesh. But in Christ's weakness, the power of God was manifested, Satan defeated, and sinners saved. Question three, why won't God take it away? Three times Paul pleaded with the Lord that the thorn would leave him. Now, this is important. Paul did not presume that at first Paul, God had a particular purpose in him having this thorn. So he pleads with the Lord that it would leave him. Now there are many people in ministry of whatever form who find it very difficult to accept a thorn that God does not take away. But there are also those who will not ask the Lord to take it away. Now, God is kind. He is gracious. He is loving. We are his children. This morning, I was on gate duty to stop children going out onto the road. There's one little girl and I kept trying to encourage her to go back in. I used a lot of tactics, like your mummy's missing you, you're missing your mummy, <laughs> go back in. And she fell, and graced her knee, and ran in. Why did she do that? Because she is a child. Who did she run to? Her father who scooped her up in his arms and the tears dried up. God is kind, God is gracious, God is loving. You do not know that that thorn in your flesh in God's providence is to remain there. When we are hurting, the natural thing to do is to ask our Father to take the pain away. 
It is not for us to presume on what God's will is for that thorn. It is right, it is a matter, I think, of simple trusting obedience to ask God to take the thorn away. And to do so sincerely, earnestly, wanting to be rid of it, pleading with the Lord. And there are times he does bring relief or takes it away altogether. Moreover, if we pray or others pray with us, asking him to take it away and he doesn't, then we know because he is our father and we pray and he hears We know that our Father in his love wills that the thorn remain in our flesh. Now to know God knows, to know God cares, to know God is sovereign, to know this is what God has determined in his wisdom to do because we have asked him as our Father to remove it and he has deemed not to, is Now, before I do dot, dot, dot and say what it is, in truth, as I thought about this this week, only occasionally has this flashed into my heart. It is comforting and reassuring. We cannot know that dimension of comfort and reassurance if we do not first ask him to take it away. Now, is there a significance in Paul praying three times? Well, it might be three times in quick proximity. It might be three seasons in his life that he has prayed, say, for example, to remove a psychological illness. I don't think there is any particular significance in the three. It just means that it is earnest, seeking prayer until he has a clear answer. Now, I've taken time to get to verse 8. Just look at it. Taking our time, eight or nine minutes, has enabled us maybe in a tiny way to grasp the importance of a time or times of earnest prayer that God would take the thorn away. Usually, not eight minutes. Maybe a year or two or three or five. And now we come to verse eight. And the answer to the question, why God does not take it away. Now, were you to scribble in your notes, why does God not take the thorn away? Here is the answer, verse eight. It's different having that answer. It's different having it on your wall in your kitchen and coming to that answer after earnest prayer that he will take it away. See the difference? Why won't God take it away? How does the answer come to Paul? We're told God said to him, God speaks to him, He speaks to God in prayer. God answers by speaking to him. God's words. God's words bring revelation and understanding. Paul is not left in the dark asking why. That's extraordinary and beautiful. 
God answers our prayers through his word. Is he speaking right now from his word to your mind and heart in relation to whatever the thorn is that you are beginning to sense and feel for some good reason that you may not yet understand the Lord is not going to take it away. And you see, there comes a point where we pray earnestly, or others do, and the Lord speaks to us from his word that he will not take it away. And then we need to not keep on praying that he will. Verse 9, but he said to me, and God is saying this to us from his word, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now God's answer explains the purpose of God in leaving the thorn in Paul's flesh. The purpose is explained in the second half of the verse. Now just hold in one hand the first half of the verse. But the purpose is in the second half of the verse. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And that's the main point of this whole speech of the apostle explaining what authentic ministry is. God's divine power rests and is experienced and demonstrated in the context of human frailty and weakness. You see, the apostles were apostles of Jesus. It is Jesus, the power of Jesus' saving death and resurrection, the power of Jesus' word that calls, convicts, that saves and sanctifies, that comforts and assures, that makes our hearts beat with hope, that shepherds us, feeding and sustaining us through life to glory. It is Jesus and his words that stir and raise our affections. So how do we see and experience Jesus? By seeing beyond the messenger to the Messiah. By seeing beyond the servant to the Savior. And how does God ensure that happens? Through the weakness of the messenger. And if that is true for the apostles like Paul, how much more is it true for us in Christian ministry? How will people in a church, on a Sunday, in a service, or in a small group on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday night, or in a one-to-one, how will people see beyond the servant to the Savior, from the messenger to the Messiah, by seeing in front of them weakness? And God in his love and his wisdom leaves the thorn in your flesh so that people know that you are weak as a minister and thus see through you to the power of Jesus. 
And that's conveyed in the second half of verse 6, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Do not think any more of anyone in Christian ministry than you see of them and hear of them. So that people know how weak you are, we are, and thus see through you to the power of Jesus. But there's another closely related angle on this. And God in his love and wisdom leaves the thorn in your flesh in ministry so that you will know how weak you are. That's the key, perhaps, to this passage. Paul leaves thorns in our, uh, God leaves thorns in our flesh so that we know how weak we are. So that we see through ourselves to the power of Jesus Christ. What is perhaps the biggest danger for those in Christian ministry? Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh. Why could Paul become conceited? Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. That's verses 1 to 6. Paul is almost certainly speaking about himself that he was taken up into the third heaven and he was shown something that is so wonderful that he cannot communicate it. Think of Paul's ministry, his conversion, his commission as the apostle to the Gentiles. What Jesus revealed to him, the letters he was inspired to write, the churches he planted, the people he trained, the sermons he preached, the people he converted. Could he become conceited? Of course. So what did God do in his graciousness for the three score years and ten that he landed on this earth? He put hardship into his life and he allowed a thorn to stay in his flesh. Is that harsh from a loving God? Or wise and gracious? A thorn was given to him to rely on the Lord. That Paul knew he needed Jesus. Needed his strength and his forgiveness each day. And so it is with us in Christian ministry. You know there is, and I'm talking about people like me and Roger and Jay and Will and Adam and Johnny and Sam and Davy and... There is a massive difference between standing up here preaching about Jesus because you are close to him and standing up here pretending to be close to him. The latter is a terrible danger that leads to burnout or fallout or the absence of power in ministry. Enough people on a Sunday will tell you that they love your sermons. And so you will think that you are in better spiritual health than you are. Every sermon needs to be preached in dependence on the Lord. Every sermon needs to have affected you deeply in the preparation. If there is to be any expectation of the power of God resting upon your ministry... Authenticity means singing at your desk as well as singing at the end of the sermon. And you might think that's just kind of pie in the sky. It's not. It's real and it's true and it must happen as normal. Every time you preach or teach or lead a Bible study, 
To be conscious of your weakness, frailty, inadequacy, inability, sinfulness convinces you as a minister of the gospel how weak you are, and it turns you to Jesus. I used, I mentioned Jay last week. I want to mention Will this week. He preached this morning on judgment. Yesterday I was in here working. Will was in here working. And unbeknown to me, he came in here in the afternoon and preached the sermon to empty seats. Just to practice. And as he left the building, I knew there was something wrong. I said, what is it? And he described how when he stood up here and preached to an empty church, he became deeply convicted of the God of judgment who would judge him as a minister of the gospel. Does that disqualify him? And of course, my immediate thought up there on Sermon 25,010 or whatever is to keep that feeling. If there is a thorn in our flesh so that we might know his, know our weakness and turn to the Lord in dependence, rely on him, need him, need his strength and his forgiveness. Now let's go back to verse 9 as we come to land the plane. I think there's something wrong with the clock. But he said to me, the clock is fast. Uh, he didn't. Verse 9. We're coming back to the first bit of the verse. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, God's answer explains the purpose of God in leaving the thorn in Paul's flesh. The purpose is in the second half, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the purpose. But before we're allowed to think on the purpose, we're assured of the grace There is comfort in knowing there is purpose in the thorn. But there is greater comfort knowing that my grace is sufficient for you. How are you going to manage with this thorn? My grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul concludes, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. And if you took this verse out of context and stuck it on your kitchen wall, but if you take this verse in the context as Paul wrestles with asking God to remove this and then comes to accept it, for the sake of Christ then, he says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So in conclusion, what will you do with the thorn? Well, hold on to the principle. If you are engaged in Christian ministry of any form, that God's divine power rests upon and is experienced and demonstrated in the context of human frailty 
and weakness. Now, that may be through a thorn. Don't be secretive about the thorn. But don't boast about it either. Find that balance. If as a small group leader, somebody says to you, what's wrong? And if what's wrong is a thorn, then tell them. Don't be secretive. Don't boast about it. And plead to the Lord to take it away. Don't presume on the answer. And if the Lord doesn't take it away, you will know after a season of praying that in his goodness as your loving Father, to whom you run when you are hurt, that he needs you to keep it. Through it, grow closer to God Through it, pray that God is glorified as his power is revealed. Through it, pray that God is glorified as his grace is revealed. Remember that one day you will be rid of the thorn. And remember that his grace is sufficient for you. For those training to be Christian ministers, well, it's a good lesson to have impressed upon you early in life that God's divine power rests upon us, experienced and demonstrated in the context of frailty and weakness. It may well be that a thorn comes or is already there. For all of us, as we evaluate Christian ministry, let's be careful and wise and biblical. And with respect to Chalmers, our ordinary little local church, God's power will only rest upon us and be experienced and demonstrated in the context of human frailty and weakness. And if there are thorns in our flesh, And if they make us conscious of our weakness, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray and dare to pray that this kind of message from this portion of Scripture would be a comforting one, strange as that is to ask in prayer. We want to be authentic. And in truth, none of us are. And so to come to terms with that, however you help us to come to terms with that, is a gift from you. Help us never, Lord, to confuse bitter providences or thorns that you allow us to have with a lack of a father's love. Like that little girl who fell this morning and scraped her knee and ran into her father 
That is how you want us to respond in a passage like this. And as you scoop us up in your arms, and that is not an irreverent way to think of you, they are sovereign arms. And you do what is good for us. And if you choose to use us by putting thorns in our life, and if, having prayed, you do not take them away, then give us contentment and peace to accept them, to embrace them, and to allow them, perhaps in the dark hours of sleepless nights, or whatever else it is, to lead us closer and closer to Jesus. Lord, we are weak, and your grace is sufficient. And we pray in Jesus' name.